Welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast, leading the way in the business of medicine. Now here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello everyone and welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast. I'm your host, Terry Fletcher. The EDGE podcast is brought to you today by the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants. Our goal is to discuss healthy business principles, have conversations on the business side of medicine, so that you and your practice can thrive, be profitable, and successful for years to come. This week on the EDGE podcast, I welcome back healthcare attorney and fellow NSCHBC member Amanda Waish. Amanda operates a national healthcare legal practice and is licensed in both Ohio and Florida. Also, we welcome returning podcast guest, NSCHBC member David Zetter of Zetter Healthcare. David brings in over 30 years of operational and healthcare experience, along with expertise in all areas of practice, facility management, startups, buy-ins, and provider compensation, and more. I'm excited about our topic today. We're going to dive into the ASC, or Ambulatory Surgery Center, and also mention the office-based lab, or OBL startups, and what the market is telling us now when it comes to giving patients options when having their procedures or surgeries and where to have them. As we all know, hospital costs have risen and continue to do so. So what are the pros and cons and options for physicians and practices when considering opening a potential ASC or office-based lab? So I'm gonna start with some of the things I've been really researching this topic and I wanna start with you, David, and welcome actually to the podcast this week. Thank you, glad to be here. Oh, I'm so happy to have both of you back. I really appreciate you both being here and taking the time. What are the most, um, I guess, important trends you're seeing in the ASC or LB, you know, L field today? And in your professional opinion, and I know this is going to be a kind of a loaded question, is it the right time for a physician to consider opening an ASC? Well, from my perspective uh, and what my clients are doing, I've got a lot more opening up OBLs than ASCs at this point, solely because the payers are looking for ways to lower healthcare costs. And an OBL is no different than providing services in the office so you don't have facility fees. Uh, you do have OBLs that could potentially have a procedure room accredited or certified, uh, and they can possibly charge facility fees. But uh, the intent here is to lower healthcare costs and to be as effective and efficient as possible so I've got an awful lot of providers that are starting those up because they're looked more favorably upon by the payers and they're more apt to obtain contracts with payers. Whereas a lot of surgery centers, in my experience, tend to like to be out of network. And with the passing of the No Surprises Act, it just makes it much more difficult to be operating that type of facility and to be able to collect money and convince patients to pay for those services. Well, and you brought up a really good point, and Amanda, I think I'll throw it to you on this one. So ASCs, obviously, which have stronger payer contracts and management, will retain and attract you know, excellent surgeons and, and prosper. But when it comes to the um, office-based lab or even the ASC space, I've noticed that many networks and panels are now closed to new providers. Is this happening in the ASC space as well, do you know? Yeah, Terry, that's a great question. I have, I'm opening um, a number of ASCs across the country, and so far we have not seen where panels have been closed, um, but I will, you know, I will throw a caveat in there. The ASC projects that I'm working on, most of those are going to be uh, surgeon-led 
specific specialties like orthopedics or urology, geriatrics, and they are working closely with the payers to do bundles or value-based arrangements rather than the traditional fee-for-service. And so from the early outset, um, you know, they're, they're of the mindset that they're going to enter into these value-based or bundled payment arrangements. And it really provides an alternative provider than the traditional hospital setting. The other thing that we're noticing in some of the markets that we're in is that the hospitals have been inundated with COVID. Um, they're down on staffing. They are way behind in these elective surgeries. And so the ASC setting is very preferable for the patients and the payers and the surgeons simply need to get their cases done. Um, and so we've seen, for the most part, the payers kind of welcoming these alternative uh, providers, um, you know, with, with open arms um, and, then, and then offering them, you know, some, you know, non-traditional payer contracts. So I've noticed something interesting, and you brought it up as well, and, and David, I'll have you chime in on this. I've noticed that I'm, I'm seeing two different kinds of ASCs, if we're going to start in, the, in that space, that there's either the, the ambulatory surgery center that is all things to everyone, or there's the ones that are specific, small, you know, niche dominant, uh, like an orthopedic. And it seems to me that the ones that are really focused on uh, one specialty seem to be a little bit more manageable. Is that a fair statement or is, is it, you know, or is it more that some of the ones that are trying to be everything are trying to basically take the place of a hospital? What, what is your thought on that? Well, from my perspective, yeah, I mean, surgery centers that do, that have a lot of specialties in there, um, you may have an awful lot of owners that um, you know, get involved in that surgery center. They want to perform their own services there. That's understandable. Uh, if you have specific uh, proceduralists that are performing those services and they have ownership in there, uh, that's one thing. On the other side of things, you could have an ASC where they go out and seek other providers to perform services in there to generate more income, generate more facility fees. Uh, when you start getting into you know, uh, a plethora of specialties, then it's sometimes harder to run a, an effective, cost-efficient, and properly run surgery center when you have so many different types of specialties and procedures being performed. So in my experience, I've seen payers that have been less receptive to those huge multi-specialty surgery centers versus those surgery centers that only allow uh, procedures by the owners that have ownership in that in that surgery center, because normally we're communicating all the ownership disclosures, and uh, that's required when you're doing surgery centers, especially if you're getting accredited or certified. And uh, they want to make sure that the surgery center is going to do what it's what it can to be a good partner in the healthcare system. Now I know that may seem you know, uh, some, 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 somewhat ironic asking to be a good partner when you're dealing with insurance companies, but um, that is what they're looking for. They're looking for providers that are going to help lower the cost of healthcare, provide patient access, provide better patient satisfaction, have better outcomes, and provide better quality of care. So that's what all payers are looking for right now. 
And you need to find a way, in my opinion, to communicate that to a payer when you're trying to contract with them to ensure that you're going to be allowed to participate. Right. Now, there's interesting something that I don't know if this is a legal question, Amanda, but this is a question that's come up in my mind. And actually, I've seen a couple people post this on a different you know, social media platforms and nobody seems to know the answer. So in March, um, the MedPAC, the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, came out and said that the total number of ASCs jumped 2% between 2019 and 20. And I would assume it's probably higher now because if the pandemic has taught us anything is that many uh, procedures and surgeries can be shifted from the hospital to an ASC. But my question is, um, there's been a change in the inpatient only list. And so Medicare and CMS and HHS um, they changed that with a new administration coming in and kind of rolled back what the last administration was trying to phase out. Is that just for Medicare? So can private insurances, can they basically say, we'll, we'll accept that, um, that surgery in an ASC, even if Medicare says no? Yeah, great question, Terry. Um, we are, we are definitely seeing a shift, um, from, so we're seeing, uh, procedures roll off the inpatient-only list, and we're seeing that particularly with orthopedics, right? And and so these are procedures that are now able to be performed in a surgery center setting, um, but the commercial payers were way ahead of Medicare. And so before they rolled off the Medicare inpatient-only list, the commercial payers were saying, yeah, you, you can do this procedure in, a, in an ASC setting. Um, so they they were ahead of the curve, and so so many of our orthopods that were very forward thinking were already negotiating bundled payments, um, you know, with with the commercials, and so they were very adept at doing that, you know, with the Medicare patients and working with their local ACOs as you know the the um, you know the the best provider or the best uh, we call it a point of service, right, or place that, that you know the best place of service, right. um, the more, you know, the most providing the most value um, and, and quality to the patient. Now, that being said, you know, when you talk to the provider, when you talk to the physician, they take place of service selection very seriously. You know, is this patient a good candidate for the ASC or should this, should this patient go to the hospital? And, and they do take that responsibility very seriously. And so if it's done at a hospital, then it's just done on an outpatient basis. But, you know, that patient can stay overnight and be placed in observation. Um, and in some instances, maybe it is an inpatient admission. Um, and maybe, you know, that patient needs to be discharged to, you know, a rehab facility or a, or a SNF. So, um, so I think that the physician takes that responsibility of patient choice and selection very seriously. Um, but we, we do see a shift and the and the surgeries are getting very efficient and you know they're going home same day um we have seen also a shift in states where now we allow a 24-hour stay in an asc so the patient can stay overnight yes and and it's actually in some cases it's a very nice experience it's like a hotel or concierge like experience where the patient does stay overnight and then is discharged the next day um so we we've seen a definite shift in various state laws that are allowing that that one night stay or that 24 hour stay in an ASC setting. 
Well, isn't typically an ASC for patients that are otherwise healthy that need their elective surgeries and hospitals would be those patients that have, you, you know, you're mentioning the type of patient versus the type of procedure that have comorbidities and things that have maybe a, a higher acuity that need that um, that team in the hospital setting versus, versus uh, that can be safely done by this type of patient in an ASC. Isn't that the difference between looking at it as a one size fits all, this procedure can or can't be in an ASC. It's more about the patient, right? Right. Yeah, it's more about the patient. Um, should the patient be in an ASC setting or should the patient be in a hospital setting? Now, if the physician doesn't have privileges at an, at an ASC, um, so think about a hospital employed physician, then the only choice may be to take that that patient to the hospital and have it done in, in you know an outpatient setting. Um, think, you know, your same day surgery. So your same day surgery department is really the same as an ASC. Um, it's just a, you know, a differently licensed type of provider. Now, I don't know either one of you that can answer this, but probably both of you, but one of the things that always concerned me is when you have a uh, physician that, or a physician group that owns an ASC, and they only refer to that ASC for the patient. They don't give them an option. Are they allowed to do that? Are they allowed to say, you're going to use my ASC as long as they just disclose that they're also billing a facility fee? Or do they have to give them an option for an outpatient uh, hospital as well? I, I guess I'm getting into probably, you know, self-referrals of Stark and all that kind of stuff. Well, from the standpoint on... Uh my knowledge base and what I communicate to my clients is that if they have ownership in any type of facility, whether it's imaging, surgery center, they have to make that known to the patient. That way the patient can make their decision on where they want their procedure or their services performed. Okay. Does that sound right as far as a legal position, Amanda? Yes, absolutely. So, um, so for, for purposes of the Stark Law, you know, David through an imaging, the Stark Law requires physicians to disclose if they have an ownership in an imaging facility or an imaging modality. Now, surgery centers are there, the, the services that are provided there are not designated health services, so we're not subject to Stark. Uh, but physicians should disclose uh, their ownership in an ASC. And many times there could be a state law that requires the disclosure of that ownership. But I always encourage my physicians, if they, if they have an ownership in a surgery center, they should be proud of it. Use it as a marketing tool. You know, I, I am responsible for this surgery center. I am proud to be an owner. I, I'm in charge of everything from, from A to Z. And I want you as a patient to feel safe here. But David's absolutely right. You should disclose that up front and you should give your patients a choice. Obviously, that choice is going to be limited to where the physician has privileges, um, but you should be open and honest with your patients. Okay. Now, that, that, that makes a ton of sense. Now, David, I have a question for you. Obviously, starting an ASC, you can't just wish that money to, for startup costs. I'm seeing anywhere from 14 to $18 million. That was from a, a Becker's Hospital review. Are banks offering this kind of funding, or do physicians need to seek out venture funding companies for capital, or it, should they start small with the office-based lab, even though I would assume that the office-based lab doesn't have as many procedures that can be done as an ASC? I, I could be wrong about that. Well, um, you're right. Office-based labs usually tend to have 
uh, less number of procedures. I mean, there are certain, you know, procedures that you can do in an office. Uh, and that's what that office-based lab uh, allows for. Um, from the standpoint on, you know, what, what procedures you're going to be doing and um, when they're going to be done and so on, um, I would just suggest that you really focus on what you want done, what, what you want your either OBL or ASC to look like, and then make sure that those procedures are being done properly. Make sure that you've reviewed everything and make sure that every payer is aware of what you're doing to ensure that you're going to get payment and to make sure that um, the, those services can be done in that type of facility. Uh, to answer your question on whether a bank actually loans that kind of money, that really requires uh, or depends on a lot of variables, credit ratings, what the revenue is being generated by the practice, uh, whether the ASC is going to be a separate entity, um, who the owners are, um, all kinds of things. You know, normally a bank's looking at want, wanting to know some kind of pro forma so they can see what the projections are, um, help them understand what the business plan is how those numbers are actually being derived and whether they can trust those numbers to ensure that the monthly payments on those loans are gonna be made. So I think in some cases, yes, there are banks out there that are willing to loan the money, but it's normally gonna be a banker that you already have some kind of relationship with because they're gonna know your business. And those bankers that don't know your business or you don't have a relationship, are probably going to be a little bit more wary or going to ask for an awful lot more information so that they can understand the risk associated with those loans. Okay, so that, that's actually really good information. And, and before I, I continue with some of my, my questions on this, because I just find this topic so fascinating and interesting. I love when the providers can find these revenue streams that also, like Amanda said, help not only with their marketing, but I would think this good help with, you know, surveys on patients and, and some of those, um, you know, value-based services and just patients being really happy with things. But you know, I, ha I have a question. Both of you, now, Amanda, you said you start, you've been helping to start up and opening, um, you know, a lot of these ASCs. And David, I would assume you're involved in this as well, correct? Yes. Okay. So, you know, listeners, if you're listening to this, please, please, if you're even considering opening an ASC or an office-based lab, go to the NSCHBC website, go to find a consultant. You can type in David or Amanda's first name and their information comes up. Now for me, my role, if you need coding and billing, <laughs> that's where I would be down the line. So I do not help start these up, but definitely with, um, with David and Amanda, this, this is where you'd want to, you know, kind of look at that if, if you're considering this, because it sounds like it's, it's something that is a positive thing to, to tackle or consider, but also it, it has a lot of moving parts to it, if you will. And, and I think that just trying to do it on your own would probably not be the, the best idea. So moving on to a, a, a topic that I'm noticing, and this is, this is strange to me. So I know that a lot of you also, both of you probably read the, the Becker's Health. And, and that just so for the listeners, that is a, a publication that puts out a lot of um, information in the healthcare industry, trends that are happening. It's a very respected publication. But I'm noticing I'm seeing articles one minute where they say, you know, uh, ASCs are awesome. They are, you know, um, 
platforms that have lower costs, they're effective, they're in payer markets, they're, you know, preparing for migration at, for, at, you know, models for um, all kinds of things for the physician. And then they, and then the next line, they say, well, now due to high cost of, from equipment to supplies to staffing shortages and everything, you know, we're running into situations where a simple box of 10 surgical dressings can be $1,000 compared to what it used to be at 200 but I'm, I'm actually seeing ASCs win in their market in the next few years. I'm not seeing it being a negative, even though I'm seeing a, a back and forth on, is it too expensive to start? Or is it something that you really feel that this is a, a good idea and, and an appropriate time to start as we're coming to kind of hopefully the end of, of the pandemic and we're trying to really shift some things here. Amanda, I'll start with you. What do you think about that? So Terry, I'd like to piggyback on something that David said previously. And that is to have a good pro forma. So I think that a successful ASC is only as good as its initial pro forma and the physicians who are investing in it. And when I use the term invest, I mean, not only investing their money, but also investing their time and their effort to really make the ASC successful. And it's also going to be dependent upon if the physicians have a partner and who that partner is. Sometimes the partner is a hospital or health system. Sometimes it is an ASC management company. Sometimes it's a PE firm. Um, but there are lots of different potential ASC partners out there. It, it is big business. Um, ASCs can be very profitable, um, but it is expensive to run an ASC. It's, it's expensive to run any healthcare provider. Um, but they are successful if they're run efficiently and all of the investors are invested in the project. And again, in, invested means in, invested all the way around, not just not just with their money. Also, from, from the OBL perspective, uh, again, it's going to depend on the pro forma. You know, how much are you willing to invest or how much can you invest? How much can you, um, how, how much are you able to obtain in, in financing? But what kind of, what kind of services are you providing? Some of the payers reimburse uh, globally at a higher rate for services provided in an OBL than they do for services provided in an ASC when you look at the professional component and the facility fee. So you have to do that analysis as well um, to see whether it's better to have an ASC or have an OBL entity. And then in some cases, I see a lot of hybrids. So it's the same building, uh, two different entities, and two days a week they operate a surgery center, and three days a week they operate an OBL. Now, so you could do this hybrid. You want to check your state licensure rules, um, but that is an option that that we see as well. Another trend, and this is something that Becker's maybe picking up on, is that a lot of payers are looking very closely at the hospital surgery centers that are in the market because they they're going to be charging hospital outpatient rates. Um, sometimes, you know, we refer to them as HOPDs. And so their facility fees are going to be way higher than the facility fees under the ambulatory surgery center fee schedule. And so we see some pushing in the marketplace from the payers saying, no, we're not going to pay these exorbitant hospital rates when you're providing the same services as the ASC down the street. And so a lot of hospitals are looking to maybe turn some of their HOPDs into joint ventures with their local physicians that are really going to be ASCs and, and getting paid under the 
the ASC fee schedules. So there's just a lot of factors and a lot of changes going on right now. And so it's not, I'm not surprised that Becker's is kind of issuing a couple of articles that may be conflicting or just new information because we're just seeing, you know, new things pop up in the marketplace all the time. Now, what would you recommend, and I'm going to throw this over to you, David, uh, Amanda brought up something earlier regarding the No Surprises Act, and I know uh, we're all kind of deep into that as far as making sure our clients are protected and understand what that means. Uh, like Amanda said, a lot of the ASCs were doing a lot of things out of network, but now would you recommend that they do get on a network, on a panel um, just because of the hassle of having to do the good faith estimates and and not sure if the negotiation, I would hate to have get into, you know, one of the IDRs and try to have to figure out, um, you know, what we're going to have to do as far as negotiate with a payer down the line. Is is it really good business to, if you're going to open this, to get on a panel and make sure that you're, um, you know, a, a choice for a patient? Well, I think so. Um you know, from the standpoint on practices and surgery centers and so on that are trying to do things out of network, uh, you know, I, I just think you look into a crystal ball and you look into the future, I think this is going to be a much more difficult thing way down the road to be providing services out of network. I see payers dropping out of network benefits from plans that they used to provide them for. So I've got, I've even have friends that used to have out of network benefits in their health plan, and now it's gone when they renew it. So payers are getting away from paying out of network. Um, they want to because it costs them more money. And they tend to, you have a lot more payers that don't have out of network payment processes or policies. Uh, there are a few out there that still do. I know United Healthcare does. I believe Aetna does, but you've got an awful lot of payers that don't have out-of-network benefits. And I think that's going to be disappearing. Um, the federal government's jumping on it, on that bandwagon. And I think it's just going to become more and more the case down the road. So I think in order to be successful, you're going to have to have payer contracts because that lucrative process of having out-of-network payments, I think is going to disappear. Yeah, I agree. I was thinking that as well. And, and more and more, I'm seeing that even when you have to get into a dispute resolution, that that seems to even be lower than if you were participating in a contract. So hopefully some of the, those panels and those networks are not going to close to ASCs. I would think, as you said, Amanda, that it's just so attractive to those, you know, um, insurance companies and payers to be to have that lower cost that, that hopefully right now they're not closing those panels. I do see them being close to physicians that ER especially that are trying to get on them, but I, I haven't heard anything yet about the ASC uh, not being able to get on a panel. So question that uh, just in closing and kind of wrapping this up as we've talked, you know, talked about how to get a hold of you. I'm thinking that ASCs will continue to play a larger role in this delivery of healthcare um, and also office-based labs. And, you know, again, for our listeners, you know, if you're a provider listening into this, patient satisfaction scores is how you're getting your contracts renewed uh, and quality scores for, um, you know, when you're dealing with um, certain payment models and everything. So my question is, is and then this just in closing, do you, and I'm going to get from both of you, get your, your take on this. 
Is it something that a single provider should consider or if you're in a group practice? And should you consider doing this with, you know, an institutional buyer or is it really something that you recommend to clients that they really try to do this as part of their, you know, practice extension versus going into a hospital? Or is that not even a question we can answer? It has to be based on the individual physician. I'll start with you, David. Um, my personal perspective is have an independent ASC or OBL. Uh, don't go anywhere near a hospital. You start partnering with a hospital or a health system, the payer knows it's just going to run up the costs. Uh, anytime you're dealing with one of those situations, cost is going to be influenced. Um, you know, I referenced this earlier. Here are the areas that anytime I open up a brand new practice or a facility, a surgery center, these are the things I want to glean from the client. And I mean, really glean some information. One, what are you doing about improving patient satisfaction? Are you doing surveys? If not, start doing them. Uh, what are you doing about patient access? And patient access is all about communications, whether it's electronic, a portal, email, text, uh, hours of operation, all of that type of stuff. Outcomes, quality metrics. You need to be participating in this because it's important to every payer. Um, what are you doing to uh, provide better outcomes? Do you have specifics about the procedures you're performing and what the results are? I mean, I've got a client that's got a very, very large OBL. Uh, they've got 15 locations. There are um, 12 different tax IDs. They're moving to a, uh, expanding into other states. The payers are clamoring to get them in. And this is all because their whole mission is all about those five categories patient satisfaction, patient access, cost efficiencies, outcomes, and quality of care. We nail that those bullets down and we communicate exactly to the payer what we are doing to be a better partner for them and for the patients and why they want us as a partner, as a surgery center, an OBL, whatever the case may be. And that almost always gets you in network as long as you've got valid points and you can really communicate that you are set apart from all the other competition in the area. Nice, nice. I, I agree with, with everything there. And I, I do that with payer contracts as well. I mean, just a little thing, you know, with physicians. I said, you know, if you're open on a Saturday morning or you have flex hours on a Thursday, you're setting yourself apart. Just little things like that. I agree. Now, Amanda, just, just in follow-up um, for you, when you, when you start this conversation with a provider or with an, an organization, do you talk to them about what is the first thing? Is it structure? Is it billing? Is it ownership? Is it the legal challenges? Or, you know, what, what is it that you start the conversation with? Well, first of all, I, I always ask, um, or at least try to gauge their expectations. You know, what are their expectations? What do, what do they want? At the end of the day, what do they want? And I'm hoping that they say, we want this to be an extension of our practice. We want this to be an investment opportunity. We want this to allow us further independence. It's a growth and recruitment strategy for our practice. And then it's also the ability, you know, to piggyback on David again, to increase our patient satisfaction. Because again, that, you know, patients drive the practice growth and practice revenue 
all of those factors that they that the physicians hopefully want. You know, they, they want to expand their practice. They want to extend the service offerings of their practice. They want to have a tool for future growth and recruitment and investment. And I think ASCs and OBLs are a great way to do that. And I think that's going to be the new wave of the future, um, whereas we used to see a lot of different modalities being added. I think we're going to see a lot more investment in the ASC OBL world. Um, so I start off with that question. And then from there, we look to see is a partner needed because the partner has to fit the culture and the mindset and the expectations of the physicians and the practice. Um, and there are many different partners out there, as I stated. Um, they're all, they're all different. They all have pros and cons. And if a partner is needed, um, you know, I will, I will help the, I will help the physicians maybe interview or, or find the right partner. Um, but I do find a really high level of satisfaction. Like, like David said, when a physician group does this on their own and they own it and they manage it and they develop it. Um, and I know at the end of the day, it's a good feeling for them as well. So I think, I think OBLs and ASCs are, are fantastic from, from a legal perspective, from an investment perspective, and frankly, from, from a, uh, from a patient perspective as well. No, that's awesome. And, and, you know, again, I, I, I agree. The future is bright for ASCs and office-based labs. Um, not just you and David, but many industry leaders stress that the importance of focus growth plans and other strategies to win the market. And again, payer contracts, management, and patient satisfaction. This is what's going to retain and attract surgeons and, and prosper in this market. So I'd like to thank Amanda and David for being on the podcast today. Your legal and business insights into this very timely topic was excellent. I hope our episode today has our listeners uh, and providers thinking about the possibilities and the revenue streams that an ASC or an office-based lab can bring to your organization. So again, I want to thank you both for uh, participating in this. This was great. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Terry. You can reach Amanda and David again at nachbc.org. Go to the Find the Consultant tab and type in their first names and their information will pop up for you. Again, thank you to Amanda and David for your expertise and insight today. As a reminder to our listeners, our second quarter Medicare update webinar is June 22nd and you can register at nschbc.org and also check out our topics of discussion. That's it for us today, everyone. Please join us next month, July 12th, when my guest will be NSCHBC member Reed Tinsley, and we'll talk about how providers can regroup and recover after the pandemic, not only personally and professionally, but from burnout. Everyone, make it a great day, a great rest of your month, and thank you for listening to the NSCHBC Edge podcast. Thank you for listening to the NSCHBC Edge podcast. Join us on the second Tuesday of each month as our consultants tackle the complexities of navigating the business of medicine. You can reach us on the web at nschbc.org, the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants.